0: now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests, will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, The Mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life. At work and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at the mentorsradio.com. That's the And now here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Our guest mentor today is Pro Football Hall of Famer Tim Brown. Tim grew up in Dallas and received a scholarship to play football at Notre Dame, where he became the first wide receiver in history to win the coveted Heisman Trophy. He was the sixth overall pick in the NFL draft. Taken by the LA Raiders, where Mr. Raider, as he was called, played almost his entire 17 year NFL career. He made the Pro Bowl nine times. When he retired, Tim trailed only Jerry Rice in career receiving yards. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. What's a great program on TV recently called think, The Perfect Ten. <laughs> yes. And I didn't realize it that, you know, in America's most popular sport, only 10 people in history have won both the Heisman and been elected to the Hall of Fame, so you're in very rarefied air. Uh, Congratulations. By the way, your book, The Making of a Man, is really quite a story of how you became the man you are today. You grew up in Dallas, one of six kids, and I'll get to your father later, but it seems as though your mother had really an outsized impact on your life. You had a very close relationship with her, and you quoted a stat in your book or or study i guess it was a study out of harvard that said that men who did not have a close relationship with their mothers when they were very young have twice the incidence of coronary disease ulcers mm. all sorts of other bad things which kind of makes sense can you describe your mom and your relationship with her and what you learned from her
1: yeah you know my mom was sort of my life growing up right we spent so much time together You know, she was a woman that got me ready for school. She was a woman that I went to church with Wednesday night, Friday night, all day Sunday. So I spent so much time with her that, you know, without her, I mean, everything I did was centered around her. You know, when I did something, it was because she wanted me to. When I didn't do something, it was because she didn't want me to, besides football. You know, she she wasn't big on the football thing, but at the same time, you know, she knew that there was something I loved. And my dad, you know, sort of talked to her and let me play. Thankfully for everybody at this point, right? But yeah, you know, I, I think when you have someone like her, and you know, at six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, even fourteen, fifteen years old, you don't really understand the magnitude of the relationship. You don't understand the magnitude of the power that what she has done will have in your life. And it really took me to I got a lot, lot older where I realized that. I was doing things because I didn't want her to be, you know, looked at in a bad way. Because if something happened with me, the first thing they're going to do is be waiting for her when she come out of church. Missionary (laughs) Brown, Missionary Brown, your son, you know what I mean? It is, you know, he got caught in this place or doing this or doing that. And I never wanted that to happen with her. And then even later in life, I realized she had set forth a lifestyle that she had lived to the nth degree, right? I mean, everything that she believed in, she lived. You know, I never saw her. She's never cursed me out. She's never, I've never seen my mom's elbows, her knees, you know what I mean? Because she dresses just, you know. So whatever she believed in, she has lived that to the nth degree, man. And it just let me know that whenever I decided to live that way, that I could live it because I have an example with her.
0: By the way, you mentioned your mom not being that excited about football. As I understand it, when you were a freshman in high school, you were in the school band. And then your sophomore year, your dad signed the papers to let you play football. And you kept it a secret from your mom. She thought you were in band practice and you are in football <laughs> practice. But then she reads the paper. They have an article about sophomore <laughs> sensations. And there's you in the newspaper. <laughs> so how did it go down with your mom when she found out?
1: It was not a good thing. I mean, she came at me. She was, let me say this, you know, her reasoning was she didn't want me to get caught up in this world, right? And she thought that sports would get me caught up in a world that would take me away from a godly life. And that was the one thing that she was afraid of. So, you know, my dad, whatever he did, <laughs> got to calm down. So she, you know, she allowed, you know, my dad to sign the papers for me. Now, I, I had played. My seventh, eighth grade, and my freshman year. But, you know, those practices were all during school time. So we never, I was never coming home late or anything of that nature. So she never really knew what was going on. But once I made the varsity team my sophomore year, then all that changed.
0: Kind of related to that, after your rookie season as a Raider, you come back to Dallas, you know, you're coming back to LA, and there's this big party for you at your home. There's all these signs. I guess, outside in the yard, welcome home, Tim Brown, pro bowler. You make the pro bowl as a rookie, which is right. really, really amazing. Heisman Trophy winner. And your mom's waiting for you outside the house. What does she say to you?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I get out the car, man, thinking I'm Big Shot Timmy, you know what I mean? And uh, they got this big sign outside, welcome home, Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Brown, pro bowler, Tim Brown. And my mom is standing on the porch, and she tells me how proud she is of me. and how the whole family is so proud of me of everything that I'm accomplishing at the time. And then she said, did you see the sign? And I I said, well, yeah, I I saw the sign. She was like, well, you know why it's outside? And I said, well, no. She said, because all of this is going to stay outside of my house. When you come in my house, you're not going to be this person. You're going to be Timmy. So I went from having my chest all puffed out to, yes, ma'am, you know, and that's, that's sort of who I've been ever since.
0: I love it. My mother always called me Danny, and <laughs> only uh, only my mom and my <laughs> sisters are allowed to call me Danny. <laughs> right, right. So your father was a mentor of sorts in that you know you really learned the value of hard work from your father. He was a very hard worker, but your relationship with your father was complex, was. Uh, as as you describe it. What was the relationship like with your father growing up?
1: Well, you know, what really made it really, really complex is up until we had this little incident, we had a great relationship. You know what I mean? It was, you know, everything that I knew a father and son should be doing. You know, we take trips together. We do this. You know, he wasn't big on going out playing sports and all that, but he was the perfect father as far as I was concerned. And, you know, this one night he came home and he was a little intoxicated and got in his mind the notion because I slept in the den. And the door, the side door to the house was by the den. And he came in that door. And when he came in, you know, he turned the TV off. And I said, you know, hey, Pop, I was watching it. And in his intoxicated mind, you know, me just saying those few words meant that I was coming after him. And, you know, he threatened to kill me, looking for his gun, the whole deal. And my mom had to, had to calm him down. And that lesson taught me many, many things, you know first of all, if alcohol would make you want to do that to your son, don't ever touch alcohol. So at 13, I made a decision that I was going to never touch alcohol. But I think beyond that, it just taught me that you can have things perfectly in line and they can just go off track pretty quickly if everybody's not on the same page, you know. So, so that, little, that little thing lasted almost 12 years between me and my dad. You know, but I, I believe this to my core, Dan and that is that everything that I accomplished in those 12 years, I accomplished hoping that it would be the thing to open up the relationship between me and my dad again. So you know about the husband and all that stuff, but even going back to being named most likely to succeed in, in high school then, and and being, being vice president of a senior class and all these things, man, I tried to put in front of him in hopes that that would open up the door again And uh, it just never did. And when I was 25, I just made up my mind that some kind of way I was going to make this happen. And I just went to him and I asked him to forgive me because I felt like if I wouldn't have did what I did, if I wouldn't have said anything, this would have never happened. And that sort of broke the chain. And for the next 20 years of his life, we had an incredible relationship.
0: We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Pro Football Hall of Famer, Tim Brown. Go to our website, TheMentorsRadio.com and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Heisman Trophy winner Tim Brown. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform on any device at any time. So Tim, when you were playing football in high school, kind of providence, I guess, strikes one day when you're playing another team. You're not on a great team, but I guess the other team was, and Dante Jones was on the other team and scouts came to see him, but you had a good game and you were noticed. So you ended up getting a number of football scholarship offers, including one to the University of Notre Dame. Why did you choose Notre Dame over other programs?
1: It was all about the education. My dad was a big football fan. My mom, like I said before, didn't, she didn't know anything about football. But my brother, who was one of these guys that knew everything about Notre Dame, knew the importance of having that education. And I remember him telling my mom, we were sitting down, I had no clue where Notre Dame was I had to go to the library and get on one of those microfish deals, you know what I mean, and get the state of Indiana just to figure out where Notre Dame was. And I remember finding out that it was 1,200 miles away from Dallas. And I was like, no way I'm going there. But, you know, what was more important to my family was that after I did these four years at Notre Dame, because the way they looked at it uh, was, this is what you have to do to get the education. And it wasn't about the football, you know, going up and playing great football. It was about football is what you have to do to get the education. So when I walked out the door, you know, the, the battle cry was, there's no future in football for you. You go up there, and get that education and come back home. So I think every other place I went, no one really talked about education. You know, SMU probably came the closest, but at that time, they were having all kinds of issues. But all the other colleges I visited, you know, they just didn't seem to have much interest in in education at all.
0: So you talked in your book about some of the peer pressure you felt at Notre Dame on that subject. Obviously, the weather wasn't nearly as nice in South Bend as it was in Dallas, and I remember you having your first big snowstorm. So you thought, you know, you called some friends of yours on the team, hey, let's go over to the huddle and grab a hamburger or whatever. What were their responses?
1: Well, everybody told me, Tim, that's a great idea but I'll see you after class. So I realized that I was going to be the only one not going to class. So I got my butt up and, you know, found a way to get through that four feet of snow and uh, got to class. But that's just the kind of university that Notre Dame is because when you're around people like that, they make you want to be better, be a better person than maybe you even thought you were because they're always pushing for the great things in life. And, you know, it's, it's really a beautiful thing.
0: So you start playing there under coach Jerry Faust, and then Lou Holtz arrives. Lou calls you into his office and says, hey, Tim, what's the story? You know, are you a discipline problem or something? Why aren't you playing more? Tell us about that conversation.
1: Was it drugs? Was it women? <laughs> was it your grades? Tell me what the problem is, son. And I kept telling coach, there was no problems like that at all. They just didn't play me. You know, he was like, there's no coaching staff in America dumb enough not to play. You tell me what the problem was. So we went through that little litany of questions for almost an hour, it felt like. And finally, he told me, he said, son, look, I think you had the potential to be the best player in the country. And at that moment, I literally thought somebody else had walked in the room. I remember turning around, looking on my shoulder because I thought he was talking to somebody else. But, you know, I just didn't have that kind of confidence. And that's not why, why I was at the University of Notre Dame. I wasn't there to be the best player in the country. I was there to get an education. And I told him, I said, hey, coach, hold on, hold on. I said, hey, my goal is I'm going to get my four years. I'm going to get this education, go back home, marry my high school sweetheart, be a deacon in the church. That's my goal. And he looked at me and literally put his hands, his head in his hands. It was like, is that the problem? And he said these words to me that no one had ever told me, Dan. He said, Tim, you can have both. And I had never dreamt of that. I had never thought about that. My sole focus was to get that education and football was a means to doing that and you know at that moment, I realized, oh wow and so I just as hard as I was working in the classroom, you know, I thought I was working hard on the field. there was room for improvement, and I just started working as hard as I could, and things just started to work out pretty good for me
0: well what's interesting is your father and Coach Holtz were both mentors, but they took almost completely different approaches where you said you worked harder, you got all those accolades in high school, you worked to be the best student, the best athlete, Mm -hmm. to prove your father wrong. Then on the other hand, you worked like heck at Notre Dame to prove Lou Holtz right. And what what Coach Holtz, you said, built up in you was confidence. How important is confidence in success?
1: Well- it's just impossible to not have confidence and be successful. I mean, I I just don't know. I don't know how you do that. When my first year at at Notre Dame, the very first time I touched the ball at Notre Dame, I fumbled the opening kickoff. Hmm. And, you know, you lose a little confidence in what what you can do. But I remember later on in that same game, they had a little package for me and they called that package. But because of what had happened in the game, they tried to like pull me back. But it was too late. I was already on the field and I ended up making a catch in that game. And it gave me the confidence that I could at least, you know, catch balls in in big time college football. So I I just don't know of anybody who is really successful who's not confident. You know, if you're going to do something, you have to understand and you have to think that you're the best at it or one of the one of the best at it. Otherwise, you know, you're really spinning your wheels.
0: We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Tim Brown, discussing his book, The Making of a Man. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Tim Brown about his mentors. So Tim, for all the individual focus and attention that Coach Holtz gave you, you know, it was still very much about team. I think he was one of the very first back then to have names taken off the jerseys. Back then you had your last names and he had Mm -hmm. them taken off everyone's jerseys because he said it's all about team. You're going into your senior year You've had a great junior year. You're the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy as a senior. You're popular with your teammates. And he comes up to you and asks you not to be a captain. Can you describe what his logic was and how that sat with you?
1: His logic was that I was going to get all of the media, you know, every week, every week, every day, the media was going to be searching me out. And no matter what, whether I was a captain or not. And his deal was, let's let somebody else be a captain. And now somebody else can get that media attention, can get that love out there. And, you know, it's not going to take away from you because you will always be, you know, you're going to get that kind of information. So, hey, look, Coach Holtz could have told me to go through a, a brick wall at that point and I would have done whatever he asked me to do, you know what I mean? so. If he thought it was the best thing for the team, if he thought it was the best thing for whoever the extra guy was going to be, then so be it. You know what I mean? So I never questioned anything that he was asking me. I just said, coach, if this is what you want to do, let's do it.
0: This is Dan Hesse, and you were listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we're talking with NFL Hall of Famer Tim Brown. So Tim, Jack Swarbrick, who's Notre Dame's athletic director, was a past guest mentor on this show. Mm. And one of the things that he talked about is his concern that you know a lot of the changes in college athletics name image and likeness the transfer portal conference realignment all those things are going to make it more difficult for universities professors coaches to be mentors to young athletes. I'm interested in in your perspective on that.
1: I think man, you know, we're getting to the point where it's seriously all about the money, you know what I mean? And once, you know, I don't care on what level you're on, you know, the professional level is different. But when you have these 18, 19-year-old kids who, who have access to the money that they have access to, you know, some of them may be making as much or more than than their position coach. That's tough. I mean, it's really tough for a grown man to tell an 18-year-old what to do when the 18-year-old is making more money than he's making. I just think that whoever decided to unleash this NIL deal just really didn't think it through. I mean, now I hear that the NCAA is actually trying to reel some of it back. But I don't know how you can put the genie back in the bottle. I really don't. And it's unfortunate that you know universities like Notre Dame, who really want kids, who cannot have kids to come there just because of money, because if you have a kid that up at that place, and all they're doing is chasing money, if the football is not going well, if they're not getting the money they want, they're not going to survive across the street. You know what I mean? Across the street, we refer as across the street as being the academic part of Notre Dame. And if you can't do that, then you can't be. So, you know, Notre Dame has to make sure that the kids who are coming there, yeah, Notre Dame is able to do a little bit of that NIL stuff, but that cannot be the reason why they're there because They're not going to survive, and they will fail across the street if that's the only reason why they're there.
0: So it used to be you didn't get all those goodies till you became a professional. Your very first year, you're drafted by the LA Raiders. What were the temptations? You you know, you make the Pro Bowl, as I mentioned earlier, as a rookie. You're obviously very successful. You're in Los Angeles. What kind of temptations face young players?
1: Well, look. I wasn't a drinker, thank God. You know, I can remember being at a party one time. Eddie Murphy was sitting to my right, Janet Jackson to my left, and they were passing this stuff. Whatever I couldn't even pronounce whatever they were passing, you know. And, Tim, you want some? And, you know, even at twenty one, twenty two, I was able to put my hands up, go, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going there. But the one temptation that was the most difficult thing for me was the women. You know, you're 22 years old, you got a pocket full of money, What you think is a pocket full of money anyway, you know what I mean? So, you know, I'm driving a a brand new Porsche and I'm playing good football. My name is all over the papers and all that. You know, you couldn't have life any better. And the problem with the women thing is it's the one thing that no one, in my circle anyway, is ever going to say, hey, Tim, you need to quit doing that. You know what I mean? You need to stop hanging out with two or three women. You you nobody's going everybody's like, "What? You did, you know? Oh man, oh, you know, and that's that's the encouragement to keep going. Of what of what else can I do? How else can you know I make this happen, you know? So it became a a real real problem and not from the standpoint of having issues with the women, just in my spirit, in my in my psyche of who I am and how i was brought up it just became very very difficult to deal with that because i knew that i wasn't right right and and that that was just a tough tough deal so yeah
0: so i remember in your book you mentioned you're a few years into your career it's going very well but you start cutting yourself shaving in the mirror because you didn't like who you saw in the mirror who you had become you know how did you come to that realization and What did you do about it?
1: Well, you know, when you grew up in church, like I grew up in church, and again, when you have a a mom who you have seen live this thing, you know, when I say this thing, I mean live a life for God the way, you know, it's supposed to be done. I knew I was about as far away from that as I could possibly be. And, And my pastor had told me, you know, right after I won the Heisman that. God was blessing me, but he was blessing me so I can turn around and give these blessings back to him in some way. And I didn't really get that at the time, but every year that went by, it became more and more obvious what that meant, that I was a kid at a high school that was four twenty-five and 1, my three years on varsity football at Woodrow Wilson High School. Notre Dame came to recruit another kid, and that night I have four touchdowns. And in my 27 years of playing football, I only scored four touchdowns one time, and that's when Notre Dame came to recruit somebody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm thinking that these things are, are my doing other than what God is doing for me, becoming the first receiver to win the Heisman. You know what I mean? And being a receiver. But, Dan, I was in a wishbone offense. I was mm-hmm. in a wishbone offense my last year because – Tony Rice couldn't throw a pass to me to you. And so, anyway, I just think that once once all these things were being revealed back to me, I realized that God had opened up a lot of doors, and at some point, I had to turn around and, and live for him the way he wanted me to.
0: We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Tim Brown, discussing the difference a mentor can make in one's life. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentor's Radio. And now, back to the mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Tim Brown about finding one's North Star. So, on the field as well, we all kind of watch swearing and trash talking in lots of sports, you know, in football in particular.
1: Hmm. And
0: one day you just stopped. Why and what happened?
1: Well, I had gotten to the point where playing football to me, I enjoyed it. I loved it, but I had to be a certain person to, I thought, to play at the level that I was playing at. And, you know, I had to, somebody had to get cursed out. You know, either one of my teammates, you know, one of the coaches or, you know, one of the the opposing players are definitely, no matter What the combination was, a referee was always in the middle of that. So, and it was sort of my way of getting going. Mm -hmm. Fighting, you know what I mean? Grabbing somebody's face mask. Those were all things that I felt like got me pumped up to, to play. But those were all things that were about as opposite of the life I wanted to be living than I could explain. So, for me... I just decided, not that I just decided, I mean, I think God had been working on me for years about living for Him, and finally came home one night, man, and just fell on my knees and just asked God to save me and, you know, help me to live live a life that He wants me to live, and all I got back from Him was, you have to trust me, and that was a difficult thing because I'm 29 years old. I'm right in the middle of an incredible career. I mean, I didn't know I had nine, eight more years to go. But for me to change my personality for the most part and still was able to play at that high level, I mean, I never cursed anybody out again. <laughs> in the next eight, nine years I played, there are a lot of things that I just cut out. You know, I got married, so that cut out a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. And so... It was really amazing how God was opening these doors. And I was like, I don't want to go through that door. That's going to be difficult. And then I step in and he was like, I already got it worked out for you, Tim. Just step in the door. I just find it amazing that during those times when I really needed to depend on him, uh, he was there for me every time.
0: By the way, it even had to go, kind of the relationship and the way people talk to you and you talk to others on the team. I recall, I think Fred Balitnikov was the receiving coach, and you didn't like the way he would talk to you. <laughs> and you had a conversation with him about that. Describe that.
1: Yeah. Well, that was sort of early on in my career where Fred had cursed me out. I mean, he really used some words at me that I had never heard pointed at me ever, even in the joking way. I tell people with a little tear in my eye for the rest of the practice. I got through it. And afterwards, I went to him and said, look, man, my daddy don't talk to me that way. No man I've ever met has ever talked to me that way. And if you want to get the best out of me, that's not the way to do it. And he didn't really like what I was saying to him, but I think he understood that I was sincere about what I was saying. And, you know, we were together for almost 15 years total, and we never had that problem again.
0: This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with Tim Brown. So, Tim, how do you define success? Oh,
1: boy, that is a very difficult question. Peace, you know, I mean, when there's nothing else to worry about. I mean, on the football field, for me, if I won my route, I you know, it was successful. But if I lost the game after winning, was I really successful? And I think that's sort of the issue that I dealt with throughout my career because I I was always a good player on a mediocre team or even some good football teams but we never won the big deal so to be honest with you I never looked at myself as being successful because I played a team sport and if you play a team sport and you don't win the ultimate team award then how are you successful so that may be very harsh and Somebody said, Tim, it sounds like you're about to go jump off a bridge or something. It's like, no, uh, I'm not there. But at the same time, I have to be you know, realistic about the sport that I played. If I was track, if I was playing golf, and I won all these individual awards, it's a beautiful thing. But I played a team sport. And in that sport, if you don't win, I mean, there are a lot of guys in the Hall of Fame that didn't win it. I got a chance to play in the in Super Bowl, and I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, I think for me success would have been if even if I didn't make the Hall of Fame if I'd have won the Super Bowl I think I would have been I would have looked at myself as being more successful than even I do now at times
0: how do you define happiness you know happiness in life what makes you happy
1: Thankfully I'm able to separate my sports life from my real life if people you know if you want to talk about my career that's one thing but you know, look, man, when I walk in my house and see my beautiful wife and my kids and all that, I'm a I'm a very happy man. I think for me, I'm constantly striving every day to be as godly a man as I can possibly be. And I believe that the closer I get there, the happier I can be. Because I think there are a lot of incredible scriptures in the Bible about trusting God and believing in this. But if we don't ever put those things to work, then we'll be stressful just like everybody else out here. My mom and I talk all the time, and I constantly ask her the question, and she's constantly giving me answers, but I'm constantly asking her the questions, how do people go through this life without having God involved in their life? How do you think as a person you have the wherewithal to to make all these incredible decisions that have to be made in life by yourself. People say, "Well, Tim, you use God as a crutch," you know. And I tell people, "You're exactly right. Absolutely, I do." Because guess what? When I tore my knee up in 1989 and I couldn't walk, I tried to walk without that crutch one time, and I fell flat on my face. And that's the same thing that happens to me when I try and live this life without, you know, having some godly influence in it.
0: So what did it mean to you? And you mentioned to feel truly successful in a team sport, it really comes down to winning the Super Bowl, but you were voted into the Hall of Fame. What did that mean to you?
1: It meant a lot. It really did. You know, I think the fact that when I retired and you you mentioned in, in the intro, you know, I was two in catches, three in touchdowns, and three in, in yards that meant a lot. You know, that meant or it's some vari- variation of that. I was two, three, and three. That meant a lot to me, knowing that even though I didn't win the ultimate prize, I had put numbers up that would be lasting forever. So I think from that standpoint, I'm super happy with how my career turned out, for sure. But again, that's as an individual. But when I get with my boys and we get to talking, we always go down that road that whatever road you know mm-hmm. but i'm super happy with all that man you know look when you look at the fact that i'm the only receiver in the history of football to win the Heisman trophy and be in be in the hall of fame the only receiver in the history of football mm-hmm. you know <laughs> i mean i have the ability to be a normal guy but that's not normal and i think you know i allow myself to not gloat about that, but you know, I allow myself to when I need to be pumped up, pump myself up. I'll allow myself to think about stuff like that because that to me just shows what God is trying to do in my life. And if I allow him to do it, he'll do those kind of incredible things for me.
0: We'll be back in a few minutes learning about the inspiring journey from boyhood to manhood with football great Tim Brown. You'll find all of our show notes and links at mentorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a positive review and tell a friend about the show. This is Dan Hessey, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hessey, and I'm with Pro Football Hall of Famer and Heisman Trophy winner, Tim Brown, discussing success and happiness. Tim, you've always been drawn to good causes. What are you doing now?
1: Oh, man, we have several little deals we're trying to be involved in. Because of the Heisman to the Hall, we all got together. I mean, there are eight of us. There are 10 guys, two guys passed away. and. We had to eliminate Mr. OJ Simpson for what we were doing. But the other seven of us got together and formed H2H Foundation, man. And what we're trying to do is partner with, we've already partnered with Red Cross. We're going to be partnering with Prudential coming up here pretty soon. And really just trying to give back, trying to let people know that we've had an incredible legacy on the football field, but we want to have a better legacy off the field. So wherever we can find ourselves handy for people, Is where we want to be, whether we bring more attention to the deal, bring more money to the deal, whatever we can do is what we want to do.
0: So, if you could give one or two pieces of advice to a young person today, Tim, what would they be?
1: Look, I would tell people initially, especially somebody young, to get as much education as they could possibly get. Mm -hmm. Because I think that if not for that, I'm not sitting here as confident a man as I am, because every time I get to the point where I, you know, things are not going my way, I can always look up on the shelf and see a certificate from the University of Notre Dame, and if I could do that, I could do anything. But look, I could not speak to a young person without telling them to seek some relationship with God. I almost get chills. i not almost, but I'm getting chills saying that to you, Dan, because. What I learned in church, man, sitting on a pew when I was 14, 15 years old, 17, 18 years old, has stayed with me to this day. And sometimes, you know, maybe we overdo it. I don't know. But I just think that it is so important to have that thought that God is always with you. And if, you know, if I live for Him, if I do these things, and I understand, I could not have lived this life at 14, 18, 19, 21. Even twenty-five. But just knowing that it's there and I can, you know, reach out for it when I need it was just so important for me. And I, I just I would love same thing I tell my kids, you know, my nieces and nephews. I mean, it's really that important, I think.
0: By the way, one thing that I'm reminded of with the story you told earlier about you and your father, you know, one of the lessons that came back to me was, you know, when you said that you and your father had a very Kind of complex and distant relationship. And to get back together, you actually had to go to him mm-hmm. and make up and extend your hand. Yep. And what a difference that made. And it reminds me of somebody actually who was a good friend, had been. And then be, during my freshman year of college, we just started not liking each other toward the end wow. of the year. And I wrote him a letter over the summer. And then he wrote me a letter back, so I extended that, wrote me a letter back. And when I got back to school, you know, he just saw me and just came up and gave me a big hug. And we were like best friends from then on. Well, you know, just that, you know, what I learned from you, reminded me of of your book is, you know, when you have a problem with somebody, take the first step. That's right. And often it makes such a big difference. Somebody has to be,
1: be the bigger person, be the
0: bigger person and come do it. And and that was a great lesson I learned. So. Finally, what do you do for fun?
1: Man, play golf, man. You know, I try and play a little golf when I can, but I have so much. When my kids are home for the summer, man, it's just the joy of my life. We have such a good time trying to make every use of every day we can. So if I can play golf and hang out with my kids, I'm trying to get them to play golf with me, which would even be better. But we do a lot of game nights and that kind of stuff around here. So it's, it's always a great time.
0: Well, you told me earlier, you knocked one in for 80 yards today. So it's obviously the game is is treating you well. That's
1: right. No doubt. <laughs> well,
0: thanks for joining us today, Tim. And you know, we've always known you're a great player, but you've become so much more a great father, great husband and mentor. To our listeners, please go to the mentorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, and Apple, and on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs
1: challenge your thinking about life and business.